Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And from WNYC Radio, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is the second night of our brand new show called Indivisible. Monday through Thursday nights, for the first 100 days of the new presidency, we will be on at this time. I will be here on Tuesdays, and we have other hosts the other night. Good evening, everyone. In this Tuesday edition, we'll talk about American norms. How and how quickly are American norms changing in Donald Trump's first 100 days? And if they are changing... Are they changing for the better or for the worse? Later this hour, we'll have filmmaker Michael Moore and a call-in for Republicans on whether you're ready for the new normal of a Republican president threatening corporate CEOs and not just showing reverence for the free market. That's coming up. But we begin on maybe the most fundamental question we could possibly ask about changing norms, the thing that might be freaking out Donald Trump skeptics more than anything that he might actually try to weaken our democracy, to move the United States in the direction of, say, a Putin-style authoritarian regime. This may be a paranoid fantasy in our nation of a strong constitution with its checks and balances. One of our callers last night, Dan from Pittsburgh, attended both the inauguration and the Women's March on Washington. Uh, I didn't see any, you know, jackboots or skinheads or Confederate flags. I didn't see very many American flags. It was like red hats on one day and pink hats on another. So Dan from Pittsburgh didn't come away from the inauguration afraid of fascist brown shirts. But maybe it's not as simple as that. So tonight we'll lay down some markers, a baseline set of democratic norms by which we might measure the resiliency of our democracy and any attempt to weaken it. With me for this are two guests, Fareed Zakaria, host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS, Washington Post columnist and author of books including The Future of Freedom, Illiberal Democracy, at home and abroad, and Masha Gessen, Russian-American journalist and author of books including The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. She also wrote an essay in the New York Review of Books books just after Trump's election, ominously titled Autocracy, Rules for Survival. Fareed and Masha, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Indivisible. Hello. Hi there. Masha, do we have you? I may think maybe she can't hear me. I know she's there. Uh, can the two of you help me build a list? I wrote down some things to watch for if we think authoritarianism might be breaking out. A weakening judiciary, a weakening Congress, a weakening or corrupted press corps, weakening political parties, using the legal system to punish the president's political rivals. And Fareed, here's a big one from your book, more power to the electoral majority with fewer protections for electoral minorities of all kinds and for individuals. Do either of you want to add to that list? Anything come right to mind if we're going to keep tabs on the markers of democratic versus authoritarian rule? Well, I would like to maybe subtract from that list in the sense that I, I, I think it's, it's very important to have this conversation 
in a kind of serious way. Trump represents many worrying things, and he has said things that should worry anyone who cares about liberal democracy. But I think just to, to start casually throwing around uh, analogies with Putin or, as happened during the campaign, with fascism, kind of almost trivializes it, and it frankly confirms the view of Trump supporters that his his critics have become hysterical and, and somewhat unhinged. This is not Russia. This is not Putin's uh, regime. There is no danger of it becoming that. This is not Germany in the 1930s. But there are very substantial concerns. So, for example, when you talk about the weakness of the of the parties or, uh, you know, of Congress, let's remember, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt rolled over his Congress. Lyndon Johnson was able to use enormous power, presidential power, to, uh, to get Congress to do what he wanted. Those are not inherently undemocratic things or, or, or threats to liberal democracy. I think we have to be, be able to understand properly what it is that Trump represents. And it seems to me more than anything else, what he represents is this kind of what you referred to at the end, the, the kind of populism that says if the majority likes something or if the, the you know often the temporary majority likes it, nothing else matters. Now, that does have a certain legitimacy, right, which is it is the majority. It is we do live in a democracy, but we live in a liberal democracy in which there are protections for minorities, for individuals, for property rights, for all kinds of things that are uh, you know, the Bill of Rights is a sense a list of the things majorities can't do. Um, you, whatever you may think, you can't abridge freedom of the press. So it's, I think those things we should we should focus on, recognizing that there is, you know, a reality here that there has always been a tension. But what worries me more than anything else is probably the way in which the the, the thing you began with, Brian, which is the informal norms. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm less worried that we will end up in a Russia-like situation because we do have a constitution, we have laws, we have an independent judiciary. But many of the things that make American democracy what it is are not um, written in, carved in stone. Um, for example, the freedom of press. This is something you know in the Constitution. It's the only industry protected explicitly in the Constitution. But nowhere does it say the president can't summon the heads of the six major networks and scream at them for two hours, which Trump did. Um, it's not illegal. It's not unconstitutional. But it violates a norm. It, it, it essentially intimidated uh, – it was an attempt to intimidate the, the free press. So, um, it was an attempt to cow them into being worried about, say, doing investigative journalism. It was also an attempt to preemptively discredit them mm -hmm. uh, in case they did that to his supporters. I'll, I'll uh, ask you later how much you think that worked, but I want to get Masha Gessen in here. And, Masha, what would you add or, for that matter, subtract? I'm afraid I didn't hear much of what Fareed said because I kept losing my connection. I did hear him say that it's not Germany or Russia, which, you know, of course it's not Germany in the 1930s or Russia in the 2000s. Uh, but that uh, I think that that is falsely reassuring. American democracy is largely reliant on norms and habits, uh, which are extremely easy to destroy. In addition, uh, Trump has come in with practically unchecked power for now. I mean, he has both houses of Congress. He has a vacancy on the Supreme Court. He has more than 85 vacancies in federal courts. He's also coming in after 15 years of concentration of power in the executive branch. 
And on top of everything else, he has demonstrated his absolute willingness to trample on the norms that have for generations been accepted. I mean, look at the confirmation hearings, which, uh, you know, basically ignore ethics standards. Look at his own uh, steadfast refusal to disclose his taxes or to divest in his businesses. So I think we're looking at something that may not be Germany and certainly isn't Russia, but that is not America either. We're in uncharted territory, and I think we're facing great danger. So listeners, here's our first Tuesday night question for you. What norms of American democracy are important to you, and how afraid or not afraid are you of what President Trump might do to them? Call us at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Trump voters, Trump skeptics, anyone else welcome to call, and we will take you all, both seriously and literally, here on Indivisible. This is the new show where we get out of our bubbles and listen to each other, I hope. We are one country, Indivisible, under God, with liberty and justice for all, we hope, and we'll at least do our small part to keep it that way. So leave your echo chambers at the door. You're all welcome to call in to 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. And let's take our first caller, and it's Michael in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Michael, thank you so much for calling in. You're on the air. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited about your uh, program and hope that it does stimulate conversation and debate and that we learn how to both listen and speak to each other. My concern is about the judiciary, that we have a truly independent judiciary, and not only that the judiciary is independent, but our ability to access the judiciary is uh, independent. Uh, I see, for example, that uh, you know a group of uh, people have come together to, to sue uh, President Trump relative to the emoluments clause, and I'm wondering how come no one has thought to create a class action lawsuit? Because as an, uh, a citizen, frankly, I feel like I'm an aggrieved party at this point in time. Uh, and so I'm just hoping that many people will step up and utilize the tools that we do have access to. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank, thank you for your call. Uh, Fareed Zakaria, anything you want to say about Michael's concern? Uh, certainly that suit was filed by some activists uh, charging that um, Trump is threatening, uh, is violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution because his businesses take money from people in foreign governments. Uh, but as far as a democracy question, they have access to the courts. Right. I mean, I think I'm actually um, less concerned about the independence of our judiciary, which is one of the reasons I do continue to feel it's, it's, it's really wrong for us to make comparisons to Russia, where there is absolutely no independence of the judiciary. And I think it's important to remember that even though Trump may appoint Republicans to those 85 seats that are vacant or to this uh, seat in the Supreme Court, uh, they have to be confirmed by a Republican Senate, which is not identical to him. He does not control them. And that um, conservative justices have often surprised the people they uh, who appoint them. Uh, you know, uh, Earl Warren was appointed by Eisenhower. It turned out to be very liberal. David Souter was appointed by Bush Sr. It turned out to be very liberal. Um, John Paul Stevens was, you know, all, there, there's this whole history of genuine independent judiciary. Less so now, because more because of the ideological nature of, of, of that, that has infected law. But I, I think that... Uh, 
you know, whether or not you can do a class action action mm. suit against the president, I honestly don't know. I do remember that um, the House GOP filed a lawsuit against Obama for overstepping his executive authority when implementing his uh, health care law. So it does go both ways. But I think it's, to your point, Brian, a very good example of the, the, the fact that we do have many legal uh, checks and balances and constitutional ones, which is why, again, I think that the, the focus you've, you've placed on norms uh, is the one that is, is the most relevant and, here and the most worrying. And, Masha, about Putin's I, Russia, you wrote in your article, Autocracy Rules for Survival, that the judiciary collapsed unnoticed under Putin. Do you want to expand on that or say anything you want to the caller and to Fareed? Yeah, the judiciary collapsed unnoticed in Russia because uh, there, was, there wasn't much of a judiciary to collapse. We have a different situation in this country, certainly. But what I'm worried about um, is that so far Trump has demonstrated that he is appointing not just people who, uh, you know, with whose agenda might disagree, but people who are actually antithetical in their views to the agencies that they're called on to, to, to head. I mean, we're seeing somebody who is probably about to be confirmed as Secretary of Education, who is opposed to public education. The uh, designated uh, Secretary of Energy thinks that the Energy Department should not exist, although it turns out that he didn't actually know what the Energy Department did. What I'm worried about with the vacancy on the Supreme Court is that Trump will not uh, appoint an extremely conservative judge, which would be disappointing but not dangerous. I'm worried that he will appoint somebody who doesn't actually believe in the legacy and the tradition and the role of the, that the Supreme Court has played in the, in the United States. That's you know, int- I'm imagining someone like Peter Thiel, uh, who will be destructive to the institution as such. That's interesting, because earlier today, by coincidence, um, I interviewed Trump supporter and commentator Hugh Hewitt, And I told him Fareed Zakaria was coming on my show tonight, who worries somewhat about weakening democratic norms. And, Masha, you weren't booked yet. And here's what he said, referring to his book, The Fourth Way, and specifically to Trump's coming Supreme Court nominee. Fareed's a very smart guy, but I believe in the fourth way, the chapter about judges should allay his fear. When Neil Gorsuch is nominated this week, or David Pryor, or any, uh, or, or, or Mike Lee, or any of the 21, an originalist goes onto the bench. When 103 other judges are confirmed under the Reed rule by simple majority, they will all be originalists. They're being advised by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society and Jim DeMint of the Heritage Foundation. Originalists check power. They do not expand it. They do not encourage the use of the pen and the phone as President Obama did. They will rebuke that for him, and he is committed to originalists, and the quickest way to lose his Republican support is to appoint liberal judges. He's not going to do that. So he is going to build the, the wall that is necessary around executive abuse of power through his own judicial appointments. Masha, any reaction to that? Let's see what happens. I hope he's right. Let's take another call. And here's Joe in Nashville. Joe, you're on the air on Indivisible. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the show and the opportunity. What seems to be amiss is that we don't address education in this country, and we pretend that Mr. Trump, uh, I'm not a supporter uh, of Mr. Trump, and nor am I a supporter of the Clintons, but uh, you got a reality TV star president that's covered like a reality TV star from the media. And, and when, and, and great respect for Mr. Uh, Fareed Zakaria and his work, but 
What about education within this country so that Americans can actually deal with the democracy we live in? And no one seems to want to acknowledge that it's turned into an oligarchy. Joe, thank you. I'm going to leave that there and go on to another caller, Alexis in Chicago. Hi, Alexis. You're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I am terrified in the current political environment. Um, you know, I think um, Freed is being overly sunny, and I'm, I'm a huge fan, by the way. Love your word. Bless your work. But, um, you know, Trump may be the ultimate loose cannon, but he has proven he's willing to play ball with the Republicans right now. He, from, you know, Standing Rock, the, the, the pipeline thing that was signed today, to the, um, what is it, the Mexico City Accord, whatever it is that that you can't uh, counsel women on abortion, that was signed yesterday. You with, know, you're never going to see with USAID to organizations around the world, right? Right, and I mean, there was a great meme on Facebook even today. You're never going to see seven women standing around telling men what they can do with their reproductive organs. But we're just going to go backwards. And um, I agree with Masha. I mean, <laughs> they're just they're, they're going to trample us. And I think just as in. Uh, you know, before World War II, if you know your history, I mean, Germany's economy was devastated from World War I, um, just as ours has been for different reasons. I mean, from technology to um, people like Trump and his organization not being willing to pay people what they're worth. Um, and people are afraid, and, and we're, in a, we're in our little technology bubbles, and we, uh, we're lacking education. You know, fact of the matter is, between freedom of the press and other newly minted rights, like uh, gay marriage, um, even abortion, I mean, 73, it's not that old, um, what are they going to do? I mean, they can snatch these rights back, and we all know that, and that is terrifying. Black people don't even have their rights yet. We had a black president, and then black people are still getting shot at by, for getting pulled over for speeding. I mean, is that going to get fixed now? I certainly don't think it is. Alexis, thank you for your call. And Fareed, you see how easy it is to find people who are really worried and want to make comparisons to Germany in the 1930s and things like that because it feels to them like— the seeds of what maybe happened very, very early in that elected government. Right, and I think the danger here is to is to mix two different things. That is, that Trump um, has decided to represent, in various ways, a pretty hard right uh, uh, governing philosophy, um, and that you know you may disagree with. But that is not dictatorship. In fact, I would argue, sadly, because I agree with the caller, that many of those things that he's now doing are actually not expressions of, of dictatorship. They're expressions of democracy, by which I mean Keystone is a fundamental issue that divides the country. About, you know, the Republicans, broadly speaking, it's, believe it's it a, should go ahead, and, and we, Democrats right. don't. And we have to go to a break. But your point is that that's a policy debate. That's not an erosion of democracy. So we will continue after this break on Indivisible on public radio. Stay with us. Violent police raids on student protest encampments play out against the backdrop of a crucial presidential election. Could this be 1968 all over again? If every election is just like 1968, then no election is like 1968. Maybe this election is like 2024. Plus, what Israelis are seeing on TV... 
on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer, your Tuesday night host on Indivisible, which we'll do every Monday through Thursday night all together for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Our question on the table right now, what norms of American democracy are important to you and how afraid or not afraid are you of what President Trump might do to them? Call us at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, with CNN's Fareed Zakaria and Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen. Fareed, did you want to finish a point uh, that you were trying to make when we were going to the break? Yeah, I do think it's important to understand Trump may do many bad things that you don't like. But uh, in many cases, he's just, you know, elections have consequences, as Obama said to uh, Eric Cantor, I think it was when, when he won. So elections have consequences. When Trump wins, Keystone gets approved and some, um, uh, uh, you know, anti-abortion stuff happens. Remember, those things were, were the law when Reagan was president. So it's not, it's not as though it's some deeply unconstitutional act of dictatorship. He was just, Obama reversed the Reagan stuff. He reversed Obama stuff. So th- that's the reality. And if you don't like that, uh, and I don't, go out and vote and organize and try to get people who you, who you will implement policies that you agree with. That, I think, is a separate set of issues from the, 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 the topic you've put on hand, which is how much is, is Trump eroding democratic norms. And I think that that is a much more serious problem. It is the disrespect of uh, opposition, of of independent press, of norms governing political behavior, such as releasing your tax returns. And it has, you know, and one worries about the potential of using government agencies to um, to attack uh, political opponents. And those things I genuinely do worry a great deal about. Bonnie in Clarksburg, Ohio. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Bonnie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So what do you want to say um, about American norms and how worried you are or not about them? I am I just wanted to say that the norms that I'm used to, I guess would be the media and right now it seems I'm a young woman and it seems that you know we are divided. It seems like the media is telling us one thing and everyone is attacking one another and maybe I mean it is an election, and he did win, so why don't we try and embrace maybe the change um, and try and change the norm, the stuff that hasn't worked so far, and just maybe embrace the fact that things might change. When you watch or listen to the media, do you find yourself throwing up your hands sometimes and saying, give the guy a chance? Yes, and I feel like, I mean, a lot of young people just believe what they read on Google or they believe what they read on BuzzFeed just immediately or like a post they read on Facebook and don't dive any further into that. And I feel like I'm not saying that I'm supporting or not supporting. I'm saying that maybe we should just dig further into what's actually happening and not just take everything for face value. I hear you, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Please call us again. So, Masha, 
Kind of to that point, let's take one of today's stories and see if you see it through the lens of democracy beginning to come under siege or more like democracy as usual in the rough and tumble of the political world. It's that President Trump is continuing to assert with no evidence that he would have won the popular vote if it were not for three to five million fraudulent votes. The official count, of course, is that he lost the popular vote by about three million. The news media is being very direct in calling it false. The New York Times even put the word lie in a front page headline about it today. I don't think I've ever seen that before. House Speaker Paul Ryan says he sees no evidence of it. Senator Lindsey Graham, same thing. So on the one hand, we've never seen this kind of baseless delegitimizing of the democratic process by an elected official, no less the president. On the other hand, the media and his own House Speaker are calling it out. So is this just Trump being Trump, or is it somehow an authoritarian threat, in your opinion? Um, well, first of all, I don't think he's asserting with no evidence. He's lying. And there's a difference between those two sentences. Um, Trump is lying about why he lost the popular vote, and he continues to lie. Trump is lying about um, uh, this idea of a phantom, you know, phantom millions of illegal immigrants being able to vote, and he knows it's a lie, and he continues to lie. And that is that is a really frightening example of um, uh, of bad faith. I mean, democ democracy depends on everybody acting in good faith. It is very u easy to abuse the mechanisms of democracy. And when we see people, you know, when we see the president um, lying uh, and forcing his employees to, to lie, I mean, we, ha we saw uh, Sean Spicer in his first White House briefing lie to the face of White House uh, correspondents. You know, that is, um, again, you know, something that we've never seen before. It is not a difference of policy. And it's not something that I think anybody in their right mind can embrace, as the caller suggested we should embrace this change. I mean, can we embrace the change from the expectation of good faith to the expectation of bad faith? I don't think so. Fareed, want to join this? Um, I agree with Masha. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that's very worrying. And I think I, it actually, I, I think there's a strategy. It's not just a kind of casual lie. Uh, what Trump is doing is he's trying to so to delegitimize de uh, the, you know, the mainstream media, delegitimize really the idea of a fact by saying, well, you say that I lost by three million, but I say that, a, you know, there's another way to look at this and I may have won. And who knows? And that's really what they you know, this is the Trump strategy. This is what he said about the crowds. He said, well, you know, you took the, sh the photograph with one camera angle, and if we were to take it from another angle, well, who knows? Maybe we had the largest number of, of people larger than Obama. And and it, it creates this kind of confusion, which makes it possible for people to play into to, it. plays into what people want to believe anyway, which is, you know, you, one side lies, the other side lies. You know, each person is kind of exaggerating for their purposes. So who knows what's what's really true? It's it's in some ways very very clever, very dangerous, um, and I think it has had the effect of. I think one of your callers was sort of essentially saying a box on both your houses. Everybody is you know is is kind of making stuff up. So let's just give the guy a chance. It it it's. Um, it's a it's a very postmodern way of of uh, kind of handling the media, but it's very effective because in effect it it says that 
facts and truth are just one narrative. And, you know, the Trump's version of events is another. And, you know, some people believe one and some people believe the other. Angela in Duluth, Minnesota. You're on Indivisible. Hello, Angela. Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm so glad for your show and how you inform people. What I would really like to hear Donald Trump discuss with the American people is the topic that keeps coming up over and over and over again, at least for the past two decades that I know of, is uh, repealing the National Security Act of 1947. Which is? Well, a lot of people, they believe, like I do, that in order to bring justice to the world, we need to repeal this National Security Act of 1947 because anything that gets protected by this act cannot be investigated. So this act is being used to accomplish all kinds of injustices around the world, and I believe it must be repealed. For example, we can just start with uh, two American uh, very documented projects. One is called Project Paperclip. Another is called MK Ultra Monarch Mind Control. We can just start with those two, and we can go on for <laughs> a long time discussing many other very controversial but, topics in the way that this act has been used. But I'm going to leave it there because that was an act, as you say, from 1947 and not one that has to do with Donald Trump weakening or not weakening our institutions of democracy. And let's see what Jose in Marietta, Georgia, has to say. Jose, you're on Indivisible. Thank you so much for calling us. Thank you, sir. Um, I believe, really, everything starts with the concept of checks and balances. I mean, without checks and balances, you don't have a democracy. Now, uh, we saw under Obama that the Republican Congress uh, blocked everything uh, that he wanted uh, to put you know, put through for the American people, and, uh, you know, they worked together as one block. Now, with Mr. Trump as president, they're going to overstep everything he wants, and they're going to work together as one block. Now, um, I would say this. In order to counter this, this movement here that's going on, the American people, the Democratic Party, needs to brand the Republican Party as Trump and Trump as the Republican Party. They're one and the same. They can't run from him in the future, you know, based on what he does in the future. They have to, you know, accept what they're doing now as being the same one and the same. In the next election, when you, when you, when you, when you vote Democratic or you vote against a Republican, you're voting against Trump. We have to brand the Republican Party as Trump and mm -hmm. Trump as the Republican Party. They're one and the same. Well, that, and I'm going to leave it there because we're running out of time for this segment. Um, but that's a political concern, not a weakening of democracy concern, uh, Fareed, but it does raise a weakening of democracy question, and then we're going to be out of time after a brief response uh, from the two of you, and Michael Moore is our next guest, and with a whole other question to put out to uh, specifically Republican listeners in the next round. Um, but, you know, some people say our democracy is being weakened by this polarization, in Congress. That's been going on pretty much for decades now. Uh, and here, of course, it looks like the polarization is going to be over for the moment, possibly because the executive branch and the Congress are going to be controlled by the same party. Um, but other people say the, the polarization, the gridlock, has not been such a bad thing. It's kind of what the founders wanted. That's why they had checks and balances. And Unless the people elect enough 
Congress members from one party and the president from the same party, uh, it's because they want things to go slowly. They don't want a lot of rapid change. So are you worried about the long-term gridlock in terms of democracy, or is that just politics and the people expressing their will and people are divided? I think you put it exactly right, Brian. Brian, gridlock is part of the American system. It is precisely what the founders intended. I worry much more about consolidated, unified government, not just at the federal level, but, you know, I think the Democratic Party is two states away from being unable to stop a constitutional amendment. Um, you know, the Democrats are in bad shape, and with that kind of un- untrammeled power, uh, you can imagine a permanent reversal of both norms and even rules that uh, that would favor a, a, a very different kind of government. The, the, the American government, you know, the, the, the purpose of, of the Constitution was always very clear. James Madison said it in the Federalist Papers. There are two purposes. One, to have a government that is strong enough to control the governed, and then two, one that checks itself. You know, that, the, 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 that was the way he thought about it, just strong enough to be able to actually govern, but no stronger. Uh, and if you have untrammeled majoritarianism, you don't get that. Go ahead. I disagree. I I don't think the founders intended gridlock. They intended a system of mutual moderation. What we got instead was gridlock, and what we got as a result of that was Obama governing by executive order, which laid the groundwork for uh, President Trump now governing by executive order. And basically, it, it, it laid the groundwork for Trump to run for autocrat and be elected after running for autocrat. I'm not saying saying that he will necessarily be successful in establishing the rule of autocracy in the United States, but I think that risk is greater than it's ever been. We will be watching the state of our democracy on Indivisible as this series continues for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Masha Gessen and Fareed Zakaria, thank you so much for starting us off. This is Indivisible. Public Radio's conversation about America in a time of change for the first hundred days of the Trump administration. Tomorrow, by the way, join our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes. He'll have George Will as a guest. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC, your host for Tuesday nights. When we're talking about American norms and if they're changing already under the new president, they are changing for better or for worse. That's the question. One norm that may be changing is that Republicans are generally for free trade agreements. Democrats are generally against them on behalf of American workers as they see it. President Trump, as we saw yesterday, officially canceled U.S. approval of the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement and met with several labor leaders who had endorsed Hillary Clinton. He also met with a number of corporate CEOs yesterday and today, promised them tax and regulatory relief, but also warned them not to move jobs out of the country and then try to sell their products back here. If that happens, we are going to be imposing a very major border tax on the product when it comes in, which I think is fair, which is fair. So a company that wants to fire all of its people in the United States and build some factory someplace else and then thinks that that product is going to just flow across the border into the United States, that's not going to happen. They're going to have a tax to pay, a border tax, a substantial border tax. Now, one of those who Trump met with uh, today was General Motors CEO Mary Barra, which brings us to our next guest, filmmaker Michael Moore. 
He first rose to prominence with his 1989 classic documentary, Roger and Me, which was largely about his quest to meet with then General Motors CEO, Roger Smith. And he appeared to have a brilliant plan. First, close 11 factories in the U.S., then open 11 in Mexico, where you pay the workers 70 cents an hour. Then use the money you've saved by building cars in Mexico to take over other companies, preferably high-tech firms and weapons manufacturers. Next, tell the union you're broke and they happily agree to give back a couple billion dollars in wage cuts. You then take that money from the workers and eliminate their jobs by building more foreign factories. <laughs> Roger Smith was a true genius. That from Roger and me. Michael Moore's most recent documentary is called Trumpland, and this past weekend he was a speaker at the Women's March on Washington. He focused in part on his opposition to Education Secretary nominee Betsy DeVos, who might want to topple another American norm that dates back to the earliest days of the nation, public education as a culturally and civically unifying force. Michael Moore is in our studio. Welcome to Indivisible. Thank you for having me on in your debut week here. First on GM and American Jobs. Yes. Obviously, you're a major critic of Donald Trump, but did he today become the first president to do what you were trying to do in Roger and Me in 1989, tell a General Motors CEO to cut it out? Yes, he did do that. And um, we've been waiting for a Democratic president to do that for some time. Uh, Flint, though, is most, mostly destroyed now, as is Detroit, as are most of these auto towns, so too little too late <clears throat> for um, uh, these cities. But it must be pointed out that what he also promised the auto executives today, in addition uh, to uh, tell, telling them that he would put these huge tariffs on cars they bring back in, he would also uh, cut their taxes here in the U.S., and he will cut regulations, environmental and safety regulations in the cars, which will then save them all the money they might lose should he actually do what he said he was going to do about the Mexican factories. Is that bad before we know what those tax cuts or yes, which always, regulations go away are? In my opinion, it's always bad to tell a corporation, we're going to cut your taxes during a time when that is not what we need to be doing. We need to be uh, increasing taxes on the wealthy to pay for the things we need to pay for in this country. Now, let me invite... Trump supporters and other Republicans to call in for this segment and give you the opportunity to tell us how much is it a good thing to you that Donald Trump is challenging the economic norms of Republican orthodoxy with his tariffs threat to CEOs. The number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And in the bargain, you get to ask a question to Michael Moore, 844-745-TALK. We'll continue in a minute. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC, your Tuesday night Indivisible host with filmmaker Michael Moore in our studio. And let's go to a caller, David, outside New Orleans. Hi, David. You're on the air. Uh, Brian, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm a transplanted New Yorker. I love your uh, your show. Thank so you very much. Tell you that. Um, and um, so the conversation is you're talking about uh, Trump basically excoriating uh, these CEOs and I was watching Frontline last week, great program uh, on uh, the path of Trump or whatever it was, looking over the Obama administration. One of the things that struck me that it relates to this conversation is Obama brought the heads of all the, the CEOs of all the major banking institutions into the White House. And the Frontline documentary says they all fully expected Obama was going to just rip into them, and they were going to, and they were prepared to lay down and kind of do what he said. So, my question is, if that's the case, and I trust Frontline, I, I like it. Um, what is really the difference in what Trump is doing, it, uh, except for style? And 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 that's it. I mean, I think presidents do this to varying degrees, have probably have done it for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we went back and looked at Teddy Roosevelt and how he was a trust buster um, and he, you know, fought against uh, monopolies, I don't see this as historically any different. David, thank you very much. Michael Moore. <clears throat> well, too early to say. I mean, this is just the, what, fifth day of his administration. So we don't really know. And of course, the the game of dodgeball that you play with a Donald Trump presidency is that he says one thing one day and may say the opposite the next day. Actually, we saw him last week say one thing in one hour and the opposite the next hour. On which thing? Do you remember? Uh, well, actually, you know what it was? It was just a few seconds later when he said that he, yes, it looked like the Russians did have something to do with the election. Yes. And two questions later in the press conference, he reversed himself and said, but it could have been, again, you know, anybody. Uh, so so you don't really know at this point. That's the confusing and difficult piece of having someone with his mental abilities in the White House. And so mercurial in speech and whatever seems to work for him at the moment, as it seems. Let me play a very short clip from President Trump's inaugural address and something the conservative commentator Hugh Hewitt told me in an interview this morning. Here's the inaugural clip. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories, scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. Which was followed quickly by probably the most quoted line from the speech. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. People are calling it the American carnage speak, speech. And this morning I told Trump supporter Hugh Hewitt that that reminded me, Michael Moore, of you. Oh, yes. In fact, Michael Moore... I would like him to describe Warren, Ohio, with its shuttered copper weld U.S. steel and Republic steel, with its closed down 
uh, uh, Packard plant with uh, GM running on two shifts and not three. What happened to Trumbull and Mahoning County? They've only voted for a, a Republican twice since 1928. They voted for, for Hoover. They voted for um, Richard Nixon in 72. And then they voted for Trump. Why did they do that? Because Michael Moore had the same analysis of the problem, and they think Trump will fix it. Your reaction to any and, of yes, that? Yes, and here is the big difference between Donald Trump and me. Uh, the carnage that he described is the carnage that he and his millionaire, billionaire class helped to create. This has been going on since they got Ronald Reagan elected, and it has been devastating for those of us who live in the Rust Belt. And, and, they, and Donald Trump himself has never lifted a finger for those women and children in poverty that he describes, for those rusted-out, decayed towns. Of course, I have spent 30 years doing everything I can do to try and change that and stop that and have spoken out against Democrats who have turned their back on the people of Flint and Detroit and Warren, Ohio, and all these places. So, so that's the difference. So, so Warren, the, yeah, Go ahead. Trump and Hugh Hewitt and all, their, all of them ruined us. They ruined the working class and the and the middle class of this country, and for them to it's so Orwellian just to hear them now go, isn't this awful? When they are the ones that created the awful. So here's a caller to last night's show, kind of on this point. This is Lynette in Little Rock. Initially in 2008, I supported Hillary Clinton. I was a Hillary Clinton delegate. Then when she lost, I supported Barack Obama. They sent us to walk in the area of Malden, Missouri. There in that area, they had lost a lot of their jobs. So you saw broken windows, storefronts, houses that were million-dollar houses no longer lived in. The companies had left. North America Free Trade Agreement helped do that. A Clinton voter, then an Obama voter, now a Trump voter. Mm -hmm. If what you say is true about the Reagans and the Trumps and the whole class of them getting us to this point. How did the Democratic Party get to the point where Trump seemed to have more credibility to Lynette from Little Rock and a lot of people like her? Because the Democrats sold these people, my people, my neighbors down the drain. That's what happened. Bill Clinton, NAFTA, all of this destroyed our lives in Michigan and Wisconsin, and Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And I worked very hard at the beginning of 2016 to get the other Democratic candidate who I thought would be a candidate of change. The people would see him this way. He won 22 states, still calling himself a Democratic Socialist. There are not many socialists where I come from. So as we Yet talk- they voted for him in Michigan. They voted for him in Wisconsin. They voted for him in Minnesota. And, and, and... I try, Listen, Brian, you know this. I was on your show. Sure. I tried to warn the Democratic Party. And then when Hillary got the nomination, I tried to warn her, you're going to lose what I called the Brexit states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, if you don't do something about this. And, and, and sadly, running Hillary in these states, the, the memories are long in terms of remembering what Bill Clinton did to us. So before we go back to the phones, as we talk about changing norms, this also goes to the debate about normalizing Trump. As you know, some horrified people say because of his bigotry and boasting about sexual assault and authoritarian tendencies, all that stuff, no deal on individual policy items like TPP or infrastructure Mm -hmm. spending, no normalizing or legitimizing Trump. That way the risks are too great. Bernie Sanders and others say 
make progress where you can, where he's an unconventional Republican. Do you take a position on that? I disagree with Bernie on that. I mean, I understand why he's doing it. Look, Bernie's a politician. He's a senator. He's somebody I admire and love. Um, But he has to play his role in the Senate. I don't have to play that role. I and all of us out there who are in the streets, millions of us. But you like what Trump did with the CEOs to some degree. Well, I would like it if he would dig up the poison pipes in Flint, Michigan, which on the news today they said, oh, there's no more lead. Well, in the water, yes, but they're still flowing through the poison pipes. Trump knows how to dig up pipes. You know, he could go to Flint right now, right, with some earth-moving equipment. And save the people of Flint. What would Michael Moore say about that, right? That would be your question. Well, I'd say thank you for saving the people of Flint, but that doesn't excuse the rest of your behavior. You you have bragged about being a sexual predator. You have racist, your racist comments for years about Barack Obama being born in an African jungle. And now today, you, I can't believe the New York Times today used the word lie in the headline and footnotes. It was stunning to see this, that the media is doing their job and telling people, when he says, I mean, you've reported this already. Yeah, we talked about the, it earlier in the show. The, the right. show, that, uh, the five, that he says five million votes, uh, fraud votes. Uh, uh, lost him the popular vote. That lost the him the po- called it a unbelievable lie. That, so, the L word. So, so no, you, he doesn't get a pass because he goes against TPP uh, when he is at his core a man who does not tell the truth, a man who is racist, and somebody who, frankly, I hope, does not fulfill his entire term. Jackie in Macon, Georgia. You're on Indivisible with Michael Moore. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Michael Moore, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Jackie. I'd like to start off by saying that in earlier in, 20, in mid-2016, I think it was, you predicted that Donald Trump was going to win. I, I, I'm a liberal. I'm a lawyer liberal. I am a working liberal. I told my husband Donald Trump was going to win. I saw the momentum. I saw the energy in my area. I saw American flags flying high. And Donald Trump won the 2016 election. Are you for him in any way? And I support some of the issues that Donald Trump stands for. And I support... Uh, controlling, getting a handle on job outsourcing. I support him on immigration. However, I don't support the method that he used to announce and, and, and execute how he's going to go about to correct both of these issues. I think the Democrat lost a white vote because a Americans are concerned about how this country is changing. Black people, the black people are taken for granted. Black people are voters, are concerned about how this country is changing. Not just the identity of the country, but our language, our tradition. Those things are important. My relatives... Served, have served in every war that this country have had. And I don't think that it is right for me to stand by and allow this country to be taken over without a shot ever being fired. Jackie, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your call. Jean Ann in Ellensboro, Kentucky. Jean Ann, you're on Indivisible. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for taking my call. What do you want to say? Well, um, I am a Republican. Um, I've 
traditionally voted always Republican. I was not happy with um, the things that Obama has done. Um, and I voted for Trump, not because I liked him, but because of the issues and um, policies that he represented. Um, I had seriously looked at voting for Johnson, um, but I couldn't stand by some of his policies. And so in the end, I voted for Trump because his policies and what he stood for was what I could I could back. As a Republican, as a Republican, would you call yourself a supporter of the free market? And if so, do you cringe at all to hear Trump threaten these tariffs if companies move jobs across the borders? Yes, I think that, you know, if they're going to leave the country just so that they can make a few more dollars, you know, then there should be some kind of tariff for that. Jean Ann, thank you very much. Ellen in Brooklyn, you're on in Indivisible. Hello, Ellen. Hi, how are you guys? Good, thanks for um, calling. Just to touch on that, um, Mr. Moore, just to get your opinion, the reason I'm Democrat primarily is because it seems that Democrats want to take from the haves and give to the have-nots. And, you know, what you said about raising corporate taxes, how else do you entice corporations to stay. You, I think that you would have to lower taxes. You have to get them to stay somehow. But if we keep taxing the wealthy and taxing these giant corporations, they leave. And then everything gets outsourced. And then we have no jobs. And then the cycle repeats itself. So, like, how do you, how else do you propose that we fix this situation? Uh, like, I just think it's just a never-ending cycle if we keep taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. Well, here's how we can break the cycle. I think that, first of all, you have to see these jobs for these uh, industries are we have to consider them a national resource that companies don't just get to take jobs to other countries these companies were nurtured and helped by the working people of this country and by the government of this country to become the great behemoths and successful uh, companies that they are they don't just get to leave uh, and not have to pay something for that we wouldn't let anybody take a natural resource out of this country and not have to pay something for it. I think the way that you encourage uh, companies under the current capitalist system that we have uh, to do their civic duty um, is that we create a situation where we have a, a, a federal policy that says everybody, our goal is everybody in America gets has a middle-class job. Everybody at least has the opportunity to get a middle-class job, which means then they will have the money to buy those cars, to buy those things. And when they buy more cars and more things, what happens to the companies? They make bigger profits. So they benefit from that when we have a national policy of jobs for all and a middle class that's thriving. Ellen, you want to come back on that? Um, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just, a, like I, I'm just afraid, you know, minimum wage went up in New York City, in New York where I live. It just seems that we're, we're sucking these companies dry and then, yeah, we do want them to be consumers so that these companies can make money, but they keep raising prices on, on the things that we want to buy because they have to justify the cost that they're paying. Right, but when they, when they raise money, everybody else. right, but when they raise, when they raise prices, then the consumer gets to say, you know what, that's too much, I'm not going to buy that, or I'm going to cut back on what I'm buying. Then they go, oh, we're charging too much, then they cut back. But by raising minimum wage 
what do people that make minimum wage, people that are in the lower economic realm here, um, generally aren't able to save anything. They actually spend every dime they make. They are spenders. They are consumers. They put that right back into the economy. And, and you know, you said the word afraid a couple of times. I don't want you to be afraid. Do not be afraid. We must not fear these corporations. And we must not fear Donald Trump. We, we, we have to realize that we, the millions who are the majority who didn't vote for him, are still the majority tonight. And we have a lot of power in our hands. And, you know, Trump outsmarted the Clinton campaign with the Electoral College. Brilliant job. But uh, that doesn't mean that we have to give up because we do have the power in our hands. I truly, truly believe that. Do not despair. We're almost out of time. Let's get one more caller on. Liam in Atlanta. Liam, you're on Indivisible. Thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you, Michael Moore, for doing and being who you are and what you do. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's amazing uh, to me the, the, the whole system and how he won. Um, I did vote for him because I don't want the trains to run on time. I want change. I want our rust belt to be polished. I want jobs back in our country, and I do agree with the tariffs. I do agree with making these companies accountable, and it's not a national it is an international. We are a power. We are a force to be reckoned with when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to cars, these big conglomerates that you speak of. I would love to work with you and for you. I'm a, I'm, uh, you know, I worked in the film business for years. Now I'm driving a truck and can't make ends meet. And, Liam, that has to be the last word from you. We have 30 seconds, Michael Moore. Does it freak you out when somebody no, 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 says, no, I voted no, for Trump and I love not, you? No, not no, no. I know the country. I live in Michigan. I know the country I live in. And to every anti-Trump person out there listening to this right now, please listen to what Liam just said. He voted for Trump. He gave the reasons, and they're reasons we actually agree with. He's not lost to come and vote the other way, the right way. Do not give up on your fellow Americans Many of them who voted for Trump will end up doing the right thing. There will be buyer's remorse. Michael Moore, thank you so much for helping us to launch our show. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to Indivisible, the new public radio conversation about America in a time of change, airing four nights a week on stations all over the country for the first 100 days of the new administration. Tomorrow, join our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes. He'll have George Will as a guest. In the meantime, keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com. I'm Brian Lehrer. I'll be back next Tuesday night. Thanks a lot, everybody, for listening and for engaging on the phones.